Welcome, Godspeak family. Great to be with you on this Saturday night. I pray that you're not too deflated by the uh, recall effort that fell short, a long way short, in accomplishing what we wanted to see happen. But uh, after we uh, take that blow, we have to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and we're a year away from uh, pursuing the next experience with an election a year away and really wanting someone that can bring good policies so that um, it will be a blessing. It's going to be amazing under these uh, policies what we're going to see with people that are exiting this last 12-month period. Uh, 1, 182,000 people have left the state of California and the first time in California's history. And they're voting with their feet, which is a crazy, amazing thing, right? They're just getting out of Dodge. And so we're sticking around so that we can hopefully uh, redeem things and rescue the situation. Well, we're going to be getting into the Word here in just a little bit. And so our ushers have some Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, please raise your hand. They're going to give one of those to you. If you don't have a Bible, take that home and uh, that'll be your uh, gift from us to you. But we want to be encouraged as we move forward with what the Lord has called us to do. As we look at this passage of Scripture, you're going to be making your way as we're reading through our Anchored in the Word series, which is reading through the Bible, the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation in two years. You know, most people have never read through the entire Bible. It's a big read, and so you have to uh, approach it like you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. So if you do it in a two-year increment, it's, it's not as overwhelming. But we pick a passage. I'm preaching tonight. Pastor Rob's preaching in the morning. When him and I are actually in town at the same time doing this, I've been focusing on the New Testament. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to welcome all those who are on live stream, tuning in to us every Saturday night. Hey, y'all, good to have you with us. We want to share God's word and uh, really bring some encouragement here tonight. Title of our message this evening is Ambassadors for the King. We're going to be looking at this passage of scripture. And, you know, ambassadors are such an important role in the world because in government, they represent our nation in foreign lands. This week, you might have noticed that uh, a couple of ambassador situations in real life were going on. Over here in Seattle, check this out, we have an ambassador from Norway and Finland. They were in Seattle, and this is what it says. They were uh, the green economy, maritime innovation, and wireless technology were some of the issues on the agenda. So here's a cup couple of these uh, ambassadors, they're here in the United States, and these are the things they're focusing on. This is a hotter topic and one that's a little bit more contentious because for the first time since 1778, the French have recalled their ambassador from America because Macron is torqued off at President Biden. As if he hasn't made the whole country mad with what happened in Afghanistan. Look at this. Furious over subdeal, France recalls ambassadors to U.S. and Australia. President Emmanuel Macron of France recalled his country's ambassadors to protest the handling of a deal for the United States to provide submarines to uh, Australia. You're going to see why. <laughs> Calling 
American and Australian behavior unacceptable between allies and partners. France announced on Friday that it was recalling its ambassadors to both countries in protest over President Biden's decision to provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. It was the first time in the history of the long alliance between France and the United States, dating back to 1778, that a French ambassador has been recalled to Paris in this way for consultation. The decision by President Emmanuel Macron reflects the extent of French outrage at what it has called a brutal American decision and a stab in the back from Australia. It's always got to get around to the money, right? (laughs) Give me the next screen. The next screen tells us, the next slide tells us that it was $66 billion. They'd been working on this deal for five years between France and Australia getting submarines. And America has moved in and President Biden has torqued off (laughs) France. Well... You know, this is an amazing thing that we're in right now. As you look at this next screen, even the Washington Post says, as Robert Gates, former defense secretary in the Obama administration, once put it, Biden has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. That's a guy that's been in the room with him through the Obama years. Why is it so important that a person properly represent its nation, or in our circumstance, poorly represent the nation. You see, in a physical world, the best thing that you can have is somebody that actually reflects the heart of the leadership and the population of a nation as a foreign ambassador. The most famous foreign ambassador with his history was John Quincy Adams that got his first post, get this, at the age of 14. Unbelievable. You read John Quincy Adams' story, it's remarkable. So much um, experience in his life. But when you come now to us, and we're talking about ambassadors for the king, every now and then, my wife and I, as you're in a restaurant, you'll have one of those waitresses or waiters that's so stellar. You know what I mean? They're just amazing. They're just Johnny on the spot, Jill on the spot, whatever, that whatever you need. And afterwards, you just want to find a manager and tell them, you know what? That person is doing a great job. You also give them a good tip, and you tell them what a great job they're doing. And they represented, they were an ambassador for that restaurant in a beautiful way. Right? They're representing them. Now, you've had the exper- other experience, though, right? Have you, any of you ever traveled in Europe, in Europe, in Germany, in Austria, and experienced... Food service? (laughs) They don't tip in their culture, so there's no incentive. So when you walk in, it's like they're mad at you from the beginning because they have to work. It's like a very hostile environment, you know? It's like, whoo, I'm I'm not sure we picked the right spot. And then you go to another spot and it's the exact same. (laughs) They're not very happy we're here because it's gonna put them to work and there's really no incentive. When you think about you and you think about me, How are we representing the people of faith, hope, and love in Jesus to a lost and hurting world? When people see us, as it says in Acts chapter 11, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Where'd the title come from? Little Christ or follower of Christ. 
they looked at these Christians, and whether it was derogatory in the beginning, like, oh, they think there's some little Jesus, they think there's some little Christian or Christ, but it became a badge of honor, or maybe it was sincere, like, hey, you know what, these people seem to share the truth and love, they, must, they seem to be filled with hope, they seem to be filled with grace, and there's something attractive about them and their message that draws me. There's something that, about us as ambassadors that should reflect and be winsome. I love that word, winsome. It's like you want to win some through your life, right? So as we look at this passage, Paul the Apostle is going to teach us. He's going to train us. He's going to educate us in what it means to be an ambassador. Not of a physical kingdom, but of a spiritual kingdom here on planet Earth. If you found your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please stand with me. We're going to read God's word, and we're going to spend some time talking about these things. We pick it up in verse 17, and it says, Now therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Father, we just ask now in Jesus' name that by your spirit you would open our eyes and we'd see wonderful things from your beautiful word, that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, Lord, that we might represent you in this lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we want to look at a handful of things as we break down this passage of scripture. And the first thing is, to be an ambassador, you need to have a new life. We might look at this in the physical realm of being an ambassador. First of all, you have to be a citizen of the United States of America if you're going to be an ambassador in a foreign land, right? Well, that needs to be true personally of you as an ambassador of Christ. You must have experienced this incredible reconciliation, and you must have this new life. You see, Jesus said that you must be born again. Do you know that you have two births as a Christian? You have your physical birthday, for me, January 31st, 1965, I came into this world a whopping 9 pounds, 10 ounces, and crushed my mom's body. She never forgave me. Right, so I had a physical birthday, but I have a spiritual birthday that at the age of 19, in February of 1984, I got on my knees and I asked Christ to forgive me of all the wicked sins that was going on in my life, and I made him my Lord and Savior. So I have two birthdays. Therefore, I'm only going to die once, the Bible tells us. Meaning that I'm gonna die, but when I die, the Bible says to be absent from the body, the moment you breathe your last, according to New Testament doctrine, 
the moment you breathe your last and your heart beats and for the last time, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Immediately, you're present with the Lord. Now, for a non-Christian, do you know that they only have one birthday? That's a physical one because they never surrender their life to Christ. And then the Bible teaches they die twice. They die first physically, but then they die as they face the great judgment of God before the great white throne judgment of God. And they go to a place that the Bible calls hell. So as a Christian, you're born twice, you die once. As a non-Christian, you're born once and you die twice. So why is it so important that you are a new creation? Because how in the world could somebody that's not a born-again, spirit-filled individual, how in the world could we be an effective ambassador for the king? For the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Because Jesus comes to dwell inside of us. Once again, it says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you've received Christ. You've repented of your sins. He's your savior. He is a new creation. She is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your old life is over and behind you. Have you ever had that moment where you're just talking with someone? Maybe they're a family member or an old friend. And you reminisce about your BC days before. Christ. And when you talk about it, you go, it feels like that wasn't even me now. Because you're so different now from what you used to be, you feel like that, that wasn't even me. But you know it was. But you're new, a new creation. God's spirit has filled you now. And you have this transformation that you have new desires. Before I came to Christ, I didn't want, if I, I had Christian family members, I didn't want to be invited to church. I would just try to dodge it any way I could. I was like, I would groan inside like, oh no. Like yawn, please don't invite me to church. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to hear about Jesus because I was far from God. But then you receive Christ and all of a sudden I want to hang out with God's people. I want to read God's word. I want to worship the Lord. I have new desires. I'm a new creation. You're a new creation. Therefore, the first step in being an effective ambassador is you have to be a citizen of heaven. You have to be born again. You have to be filled with God's spirit so that the old life is behind you and the new life is now being lived through you. Secondly, we have a new ministry. So we have a new life. Now we have a new ministry in verse 18 and 19. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So first of all, we've went through that process of reconciliation. The word reconciliation here, it means to bring a friendly, harmonious relationship where there was enmity and animosity and contention. We have people that get divorced for irreconcilable differences. Right? They no longer can be friendly. Have you attested to that? Even beautiful Christians that I've known for years, they're so sweet, they're so kind, they're so gracious, and you mention the accident, they're like, ah! You're like, whoa, I just had a flashback of the old creature you used to be. <laughs> There's this, this hostility, right? Because the irreconcilable differences, the pain of the divorce or the pain of the betrayal or the pain of those different things, 
My folks, who were divorced when I was five years old, had not been together in the same room for about a decade when Tammy and I got married. And they came to be with us at the wedding, and we're at the rehearsal the night before, and they barely got into line and they started bickering with each other. Now my mom watches these. Hi, mom, remember this. So, (laughs) you see, I tell on myself. I get myself in trouble all the time, so... Anyway, we could edit that out. I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> so they start bickering with each other about things, and they've, you know, they've both got significant others with them. And, and I turned around, and it was the first time, you know, I'm 21, I turned around, and it's the only time that I rebuked my parents. I looked at mom and dad, and I said, hey, today's not your day. It's Tammy and my day. So be nice and be quiet. And so they were. It was great. It was awesome. But do you know that before you come to Christ, you also are at enmity with God, with hostility. The Bible says actually the wrath of God is upon you. That you're at enmity with God. You you don't want God's ways. You don't want his word. You don't want his son. You don't want his spirit. You, You don't want these things. Now some people are somewhat casual in their animosity towards God. Others are very hostile even people that will tell me, I'm an atheist. I'm like, okay. And I'm mad at God. I'm like, you just said you don't believe in God, and yeah, you're torqued off at somebody. What's your pro-? I mean, at least be consistent. Whatever your thing is, be consistent. So some people are very angry at God. But you realize that when that harmony comes, and now all of a sudden, it's just like getting things patched up with a loved one. Right? You're at odds with each other. You've been bickering. You've been fighting. And and you finally look at one another and say, I'm sorry, could we just start over? You know, it's the pits to have that tension in your relationship. And, you know, if you're married a really long time, you've got a lot of practice for this. You have to be two really good forgivers. My wife and I have been married 35 years. We have lots of practice about not only offense, but also forgiveness. One day I came home and and uh, Tammy had just, I mean, she had fixed a wonderful meal, and I mean, she had really kind of went over the top for this special night, and I came in, and my head was just filled with all of these troubles I had through the day, and I was like a bull in a china closet, and by, within t- 15 minutes, I had ruined the whole night by my own presence, and, and Tammy just sat there discouraged and looking at me, and then it dawned on me what happened, and I realized the only way to rescue this is to humble myself and to get her to laugh, because laughter fixes things, and so I said, hey. I'm so sorry, I've just like blown everything. Could we rewind? (laughs) Hi, honey, I'm home. And just by being a goofball, I got her to forgive me and start laughing so that we could start the night over and we had a harmonious, reconciled evening where there was tension. The moment you come to Christ and you are now this new creation and you have this experience of harmony with God, he then gives you that word of reconciliation to share with others. That's your ministry. You know now how to share with others how to have harmony, friendship, intimacy with God because you've went through the process yourself. You've acknowledged your sin. You've acknowledged that Jesus died for that sin and you've received Jesus to wash and to forgive you of that sin, and the harmony comes together. For it tells us here, 
Once again, verse 18, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the Apostle Paul is the one writing this, but he has the ministry of reconciliation, but so do we. Every single Christian has the ministry of reconciliation because if you've been through this process, this is what God wants to do. Not heap up, or it says in this passage, imputing everybody's sin to them, just going around and piling sin on them. Actually, our ministry of reconciliation, how to get to a friendly, harmonious, reconciled place, is to share with others that, yes, we have sinned, but Jesus paid that full price. So that we want to point to the finished work of what Jesus has done, rather than just pile up a bunch of sin on people, that innately people know that they've fallen short and they've missed the mark. But this new role comes with a new title. It's ambassadors. It's, it's an epic word, truly. In verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God is pleading with me through his spirit tonight to those who have not been reconciled to God. If you haven't simply come to Jesus and had that experience of asking for his forgiveness and receiving the full paid price that he accomplished on the cross for your sins and my sins, as if you can't quite get over the fact of that. Because sometimes I'm ministering the word of reconciliation. I'm operating as ambassador. I'm representing a king from his kingdom here on planet earth to a human heart. And I tell them, hey, Jesus has paid the price. All you have to do is receive it, acknowledge your sin, and accept his forgiveness, and you'll be saved. And people look at me and they go, it can't be that easy. You ever had that? Even for some of us here tonight, you might go, hey, wait a second. There's got to be some good works in there. Where's the good works? I want to do some good things so that when I get to heaven, good people like me go to heaven. No, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people that then become good people go to heaven. But it's forgiven people that go to heaven. You see, humanity, men and women, I want to challenge you. One of the biggest problems you're ever going to have in your life is you want to earn your way to heaven. You want to do enough good things because you want to get to heaven and pull, say you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. Wouldn't heaven be a drag? Everybody waltzing around heaven bragging about how good they are and how they got there. It would be the pits. It wouldn't be heaven at all. We're going to get there so humbled that all I did to get into my God's heaven was receive the complete work of what his son did on the cross. I'm going to believe by faith and receive salvation. I'm not going to earn and deserve it. And some are here and you are outside the gates of the kingdom and I'm begging you, pleading with you to come in because you're in this posture of earning and deserving God's favor and you will never be good enough. I don't care if you live 10 lifetimes, you will never be good enough to go to God's heaven because his entrance, his requirement is 100% perfection. And unless you bring 100% perfection, you are not allowed unless you are covered by the blood of the one that is 100% perfect, that is his son Jesus. So it is through the blood of Jesus and his complete 100% perfect work that I stand before God and when God sees me, he sees his son Jesus. 
And that's why I'm going to go. People will say, you're so confident about you going to heaven. You're so arrogant. I had a guy tell me that one time. I said, now reason with me logically just for a moment. I have said confidently I'm going to heaven because of what someone else has done. And how in the world is that arrogant on my part? Because I'm boasting and bragging about the one that accomplished it, Jesus. And I'm boasting in him. And I am just one beggar that knows where the bread is. Right? I'm just coming to Jesus. And it's so humbling, isn't it? To simply say, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I've fallen short. Try as I may, I can never be good enough to go to heaven. Ever. I don't care how long I lived. I don't care if they locked me in a monastery, right? My own thought world would dig a quick hole all the way to hell, right out of the monastery floor. But isn't it something that people really don't believe, verse 21 here, in this new role as ambassador, you are bringing the best news and the greatest exchange in all of human history to the table to share with someone to plead with them, because this is the most mind-blowing verse in verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus was perfect. He knew no sin. And God made him to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. God took Jesus' righteousness and gave it to me, a broken, sinful man. And he took my broken sinfulness and he put it on Jesus. Can I just say it this way? Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. Right? You might think you're really skilled. <laughs> Some of you should have a PhD. And your skillfulness with sin. But he who knew no sin became sin for you. Isn't it any wonder that Jesus cried out when he hung on that cross? Jesus spoke seven things from the cross. They're called the seven saints from the cross. And one of those was, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment of darkness for three hours, it appears theologically it's a mystery to us, but it was the only time in all of eternity that the Father and the Son were separated, and it was three hours of darkness as the entire sense. Have, do you know the, the feeling of guilt when you do something wrong? Imagine that multiplied by billions and trillions of people's sins. Imagine... All of eternity, the humanity of sin and the guilt and shame, all washing over Jesus in wave after wave after wave as he who knew no sin became sin for us. He had never had a guilty feeling in all of eternity. He had only been obedient. He is the perfect son of God. And yet, when we come to Christ and we experience forgiveness, we're flooded with this euphoria of forgiveness and rightness with God. Yet Jesus was saturated with your sin and my sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God. If you believe in Jesus, you stand here or sit here tonight 100% righteous in God's sight because of the finished work of what Jesus did. Practically speaking, you're not perfect, right? If I just ask your wife how your morning was, that, that'll take care of it right there. Right, practically, you're not perfect. But do you realize this? This is the mind-blowing thing. Romans chapter five says that God has delivered us from the penalty of sin. I'm not gonna have to pay for my sins. Jesus paid for those on the cross. 
In chapter six, he said that Jesus has broken the power of sin. Now for the first time in my life, I have the the power to be obedient to God. And then in chapter seven, he promises that one day he'll remove the presence of sin when I get to heaven, but that has not happened here on planet earth. I still have the presence of sin inside of me. But this is why it's all so urgent as we get to the first two verses of chapter six. And it says, we then as workers together with him, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. All of this grace is coming towards you. Don't let it pass you by in vain. But throw your arms around it and embrace it with your whole heart. In verse 2 it says, For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul lays all of this out. He says, man, this is what Jesus has done for you. We are his ambassadors and we're pleading with you. What time, what time is it? The time is now of salvation. Manana, tomorrow, is always the devil's, right? Have you ever had that thought before you came to Christ? You ever come to church and they're given an opportunity, which we'll give you an opportunity at the end of this, to pray simply and believe these things by faith. Know 100% that if you were to die tonight, you're going to be with Jesus in heaven from the promises of God's word, absolute confidence. But having said that, you put that off. You go, oh, especially when you're young. I heard the gospel crystal clear and understood it for the first time in my life when I was 12 years old. My parents had taken me to church a few times. My grandparents had taken me to church a few times. But I honestly, I really didn't get the whole Jesus thing. I'm like, Jesus is Lord somehow. He did something on the cross and the Bible's God's word. That's all I got. And I got some Christian family. And I didn't get it. And it was, you know, through this summer, I tried to get out as many Sundays as I could. But I was living with my dad that summer and working for him in his custom combining harvesting business. And, and on the last Sunday I was in church with him, for the first time the pastor gave a crystal clear gospel message. He even had these hand motions. He's like, Jesus hung on the cross with nails through his hands and his feet. He died for your sins. And if you would recognize your sinfulness and receive him as your savior, you would be saved. This is the good news of Christianity. And I was thunderstruck at the age of 12. I thought, this is what I thought. Oh no, I know. Now that I know, I gotta do something about it. And I was so freaked out. At the age of 12, I was sitting there thinking, I don't want to pray. I, the people raise their hands. They go forward. They do all this weird stuff. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to. I'm all, I was already being wild and uh, getting in serious trouble at that age. Already getting suspended for trying to spike the school punch and getting in trouble with the law and various things. I was already going down that road. And I was thinking to myself, no, no. I, I can't believe in Jesus, but now I know. Even in this passage, it takes me back to that moment that Paul the Apostle said, today is the day of salvation. But this is what I thought in my 12-year-old mind. This is how I brushed it off. I'm too young to give my life to Jesus. I'm 12. I'm going to give my life to Jesus when I'm really, really old. And I looked at somebody, I'm like, that guy over there, he's got to be at least 30. (laughs) And my really, really old was like 30. That was like ancient. I mean, you're on Social Security or something from a 12-year-old's perspective at 30. You're so far gone. And I'm like, at 30, surely there's no more fun to be had in sin. And and I'll do it when I'm 30. And I turned my back on God and I ran from God 
for the next seven years till I was 19. And the harder I ran, the harder God ran after me. As my grandparents prayed for me, prayed that God would get a hold of me. You see, there's a lot of young people, and maybe you're here tonight, and you think, you know, I'm just too young to really surrender my life to Christ. You're not too young. I have one regret in life, and that's that I did not surrender my life at the age of 12 so that I could be an ambassador of the king from that age. Going through school, I don't know what it would have been like, but in our little community, it would have been quite, quite remarkable, the, the mocking. Because even when I gave my life to Christ at 19, and my older brother Scotty, who was 22, committed his life, it was a rumble through our little town. The Brown brothers have given their life to Christ. Everybody said, it can't be true. It's not true. Others said, no, they must be weird, involved in some weird cult. Those two are so far gone, there's no way that God will have anything to do with them. Right? It was the talk of the town through our, our little conversion experience. But then there are other people at the other end of the spectrum, right? Oh, I'm too old. I've had this conversation many times. Oh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I'm looking at them with their, you know, the look on their face. They got one foot in a grave and the other on a banana peel. And I'm like, you old dog are about ready to die. You better learn this new trick right now. You better come to Jesus because you're, you're about, to, you're not long for this planet. You'll have other people. They're like 90 and they're telling me their plans for the next de- decade. I'm like, that's very optimistic. I'm looking at you and you don't look good. Right? You're getting ready to step into eternity. So there are people that are too young. Oh, I don't want to give my life to And then there are people that, I'm too old to give my life to Christ. And then there's the people that say, I'm too bad. You, know, you always meet these people. I don't go to church because, you know, obviously the roof would cave in. And I'm like, you know the people that go to God speak? It wouldn't just cave in. It would be like a crater out here, literally. Because if sin was the issue... Like you're too bad. Like, do you know that there's only one unforgivable sin in the Bible? It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That means if the Holy Spirit knocks on the door of your heart all the way through your life until your last breath and the Holy Spirit's saying, you're a sinner, you need a savior, receive Christ, and this is what the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart, and he does that all the way to the end of your life, that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, rejecting Christ, is the only unpardonable sin. Do you know that? Murder, though awful, is not unpardonable sin. All, any sin that you can imagine outside of just rejecting Christ is forgivable. There's nothing that you have done or a multitude of times you've done it that God will not in his grace forgive because otherwise why did his son come to finish a work if somehow you're outside of that work that Jesus accomplished on the cross? And lastly, you see there are those who think they're too young, there are those who think they're too old, there are those who think they're too bad, and this is the worst group, gotta tell you, there are those who think they are too good to come to Christ. I'll share my testimony with good people and they'll go, well, you needed Jesus. You were terrible. But I'm a good person. And that's good for you, but I'm a good person. I'm like, have you ever lied? 
I start taking them through the Ten Commandments. Because nobody ever, I live by the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. The Ten Commandments will totally bust you wide open as a sinner. Right? First of all, have you ever loved anything or anyone more than God? That's the very first thing. Well, sure I have. You didn't even make number one. Number two, no engraven image. Have you ever worshipped something, given your, all your energy to it more than God? Yes. Number two. <laughs> have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Number three. Have you ever dishonored his Sabbath? Number four. Have you ever dishonored your folks? Number five. Have you ever committed adultery? And Jesus takes it a step further. Have you ever even looked at another person to desire to commit adultery with them? You didn't even go through the act. Ah. Like you can't make it through, guys. You are not good. Have you ever lied about it? We are lying, sexually immoral people that have dishonored God in our life at some time, in some way, in our life. Correct? Now don't own it too much. But that is us, in a nutshell. So why is it then so important for a person to know these simple verses? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who has not sinned. Young, old, in between. So you're not too young to come to Christ, you're not too old to come to Christ, you're not too bad to come to Christ, you're not too good to come to Christ. I beg you, I plead with you, come to Christ. You know, all these great ambassadors that represented the Lord in the day had the same passion to share with people God's love. You see, it's not some kind of um, reward program or incentive or pyramid scheme. You know, if some of you come to Christ tonight, it's not like I get some special <laughs> thing going on, like there's a commission. There's no commission. It's just once you've experienced God's forgiveness and God's love and God's joy and peace, you want it for everybody you love. You want it for everybody you know. And it doesn't matter what nation they're from or what color their skin is or what language or what they've done in their life. You want them to know love and acceptance and forgiveness just like you do in Jesus. The ambassador Moses in his day exhorted the people in Deuteronomy 30 in a similar way. He says, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. How do you do it in the Old Testament? Moses, he says, I, I call heaven and earth as a witness. I put before you life and death. Choose life, surrender to God. Reject death, a life of sin and being cursed with an eternity separated from God. The ambassador, if you will, for God's kingdom in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15 says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. And I, I beg of you, I plead with you, I exhort you 
that's as far as it can go because nobody can force a person to surrender. The keys of your heart are on the inside. Like that famous painting, oftentimes in the leaflet of a Bible, we'll have the picture of Jesus knocking on a door. You know, it's got the arch door. I'm sure you've seen it. The artist who wrote it, I mean, uh, drew it, his last name was Hanson. And when he did this painting, his artist friends made fun of him, and they said, because he told them it was finished. And they said, it's not finished. There's no door handle on the door. And he said, no, my door, I realize that as Jesus knocks, the door handle's on the inside. You see, Jesus is not going to bust it in open. He's a perfect gentleman. If you don't want the Lord Jesus in your life, then he honors you as a perfect gentleman. That's your decision. You're created in God's image. Nobody's going to force you. The person to your right and left, they can't force you. And the ambassador Paul in Romans tells us this. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, and also verse 13, he says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That whoever is for anybody, if you have a heartbeat, <laughs> you qualify. If you call upon the name of the Lord. But there's two things that you need to understand by faith inside. And that is simply this. That you believe in your heart. That God has, not only did Jesus die on the cross for your sins, but God raised him from the dead because Jesus conquered death. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is your Lord. If you tell somebody, yeah, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm a Christian. Because when you believe things on the inside, they always make it out your mouth. You know what I mean? If you, love, if you go to a new restaurant and you love it, on Monday around the water cooler, you're telling all your coworkers, hey, did you go to that place? I thought it was awesome. The food is amazing. Is it? As soon as you experience something that really moves you somehow, you're, you're talking about it. And so you believe in your heart. And let me just ask you that question. You'll know if you're reconciled to God. You'll know if you're now an ambassador. You'll know if you are secure in your walk with God in the kingdom. I just simply ask you, do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead? And you go, I believe that. And have you confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord? that you're a Christian, that you're following him. You go, I have. Welcome to God's kingdom. You go, wait, that was just too easy. I believe these things. Just because he made it easy and simple, and in some sense free for us, it cost Jesus absolutely everything to accomplish, to make it available to you in such a free way. He hung naked on a cross with spikes through his hands and his feet and died a brutal death so that you might lay hold of it simply by faith. The cost was the son of God's life for your entrance into this heavenly kingdom. The wonderful thing about the Christian life and its message, the good news, that's why being an ambassador of God's kingdom, we've come to planet earth with a great message. Hey, who knew no sin became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid the full price for you. All you do have to do 
is open your heart, recognize your own sinfulness, and recognize that he paid the price for it on the cross and rising from the dead, and make him the Lord of your life, and you shall be saved. Do you have that confidence? You go, well, you know, I've, I've prayed before to receive Jesus, and I do believe those, but I still struggle with sin and temptation. Welcome to the Christian life, right? I simply ask, are you in heaven yet? Because the presence of sin, though the penalty of sin has been dealt with, the power of sin has been dealt with, but the presence of sin is still here, which Paul the Apostle said, your flesh and your spirit wrestle on the inside. This is what Galatians chapter 5 tells us, right? They're contentious. I don't always do what I want to do. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do. And my flesh is like, oh, no, no, let's go do this. And I, and I struggle back and forth, and I wrestle back and forth. That's the Christian life. So get used to that in your neighborhood <laughs> of walking with Jesus. Because until we go home to be with him, that will be there. And that really shows us that the battle is real to want to honor God with our lives. Because daily we have to pick up our cross and deny ourselves. Daily. What that means is, it doesn't mean what everybody always uses. You know, my wife, we've been married for 53 years. Everybody's got their cross to bear. Right? Like the wife's the cross to bear. Or, you know, I got ingrown toenails. That's just my cross to bear. It's not talking about that. If I pick up my cross daily, what it means is when I pick up my cross, I'm dying to the will of Rick Brown, which is always 180 degrees in the opposite direction of God. I want to wake up every day and do my own thing. But I pick up my cross and deny myself, and I discover what God's will is, and I pursue that. And each day in a Christian's life, that's the process. Today I can do what I want to do or I can do what I know the Lord wants me to do. And those two things are not always opposite. Oftentimes exactly what you're wanting to do is exactly what God wants you to do. But the wrestling match comes when it's the sin that's trying to drag us away rather than us just pleasing the Lord and doing what the Lord wants us to do. So as we close here tonight, we're going to have the worship team come back up. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. And if you want to be confident in your own walk with the Lord, to know that you've opened your heart as we've experienced this reconciliation, and we want to plead with you to experience this reconciliation so that we can be effective ambassadors of Jesus because Jesus wants you to be reconciled so that there's harmony now between you and the Father. I'm just going to ask you to simply pray. Open your heart by faith, and you're going to pray. Let's bow our heads right now as we wrap this up and pray and open our hearts to Jesus' Lordship. Right now, in just the quietness of your own seat, maybe you've never just verbalized the things that you, you know to be true. Maybe you have never opened your heart to pray in such a way to seal the deal, so to speak, in your walk with Jesus. I want to just invite you right now to open your heart by faith to Jesus. He loves you. He gave his life for you. He wants to wash you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to ex accept you, love you. 
and reveal himself to you. And he's offering to you, he's knocking on the door of your heart tonight. And right now you have this opportunity to respond to him. Pray with me right now, just in the sincerity of your own heart. If you want his lordship, you want his forgiveness, pray with me now. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. And that you rose from the dead. And that you're here tonight to forgive me. And to fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can walk with you and follow you all the days of my life. Tonight, Jesus, I surrender. I'm tired of resisting. I'm tired of fighting against you. I ask that you would take my life and use it to touch other people's lives with your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. In your name, amen. Amen. If you open your heart to pray and surrender your life, I just want to welcome you into God's family. It's the journey begins as you walk with him day by day, week by week, month after month, and the years begin to roll by. It just gets sweeter and sweeter as he changes us from glory to glory. Let's stand together and sing this closing worship song with the team.